Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo, and today's guest is Siddharth Kara, an author, researcher, and activist on modern slavery. He is a British Academy Global Professor and an Associate Professor of Human Trafficking and Modern Slavery at Nottingham University. Kara has authored three books on modern slavery and won the Frederick Douglass Book Prize. Kara's first book was adapted into a Hollywood film, Trafficked. A feature film inspired by Cobalt Red is currently in pre-production. He divides his time between the UK and the US. I welcome Siddharth Kara to Savage Minds. I have followed a lot of your work. I'm someone who has worked in the field of human trafficking, and it's one of those Debbie Downer moments that you can't bring up at social events, because if you do, it suddenly puts a damper on things, and you find out often, even sadly, where political alliances lie in terms of the way people perceive their own existence in this world and how human trafficking, especially in the West, is often perceived as something that happens over there. It doesn't involve us. And I'm sure you've had moments where you've been at that party and a few times you've actually said what you work on. And I'm just guessing here, but you know, it can really evoke strong emotions when you start to talk about the actual things that you have seen, that you've written about. And I'm referring to one talk I listened to last week, where as you were beginning the talk, you noticed that there were perhaps children or adolescents in the audience. So you changed the word from rape to attacked. And watching that, Siddharth, it put chills down my spine because it was, for me, almost worse. Because you you become very conscious of how desensitized you are to the kind of violence that many people in the West are protected from for various reasons, often socioeconomic and often political. And I'm wondering if you might begin this talk today discussing how, in fact, you approached your work on human trafficking, which is really devastating as a field in itself, much less for most Westerners to actually understand, to include the way that there are a few degrees of separation between them and people who are trafficked. Well, you know, it's it's an interesting way to start a conversation because um, you're quite right. I When I met... Um, uh, you know, social gatherings or uh, dinner party or whatever, and meeting new people. And someone says, oh, you know, what do you do? And I think to myself for a moment, oh, my friend, you don't really want to know what I do because it's going to mess up your head and your whole night. Um, and I'll make an effort to maybe just be generally vague about it. I work on human rights. Uh, and then, oh, really, what aspect? And then, you know, if it goes into that direction, then, um, yeah, people... Uh, have varying reactions. Sometimes they can be rather uncomfortable about it um, for understandable reasons. Uh, It's not good dinner conversation or just not uplifting conversation in general. Uh, But that said, some people uh, are, are actually quite um, open and learn more about the topic um, in the context of a basic interaction now when i give a talk in a lecture yes it's right you're right i have to be very aware of the audience usually i'm speaking to you know an adult audience uh whether it's a university or um, a convening of policymakers um something like that but uh, i always scan to see is is there are there young people uh, in in earshot or in the room uh, because then i have to be very careful about 
my word choice and what topics I go into and to what uh, level of detail, because the work I do generally involves um, exploration of uh, really brutish subhuman exploitation of an entire subclass of humanity that uh, subsists and ekes out a base existence at the bottom of the global economic order. Uh, and, And it's reached and achieved, I think, one of its ugliest and most severe manifestations in my current work, which is the the forced and child labor involved in cobalt mining in the Congo. Well, that was quite a read for me, I have to say, because as much as I'm aware of a lot of the facts you bring up in the book, there were as many that I did not know. In fact, there were many more that I did not know. Your book opens up in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, in the Katanga region, where cobalt is mined. And this region holds I'm quoting you, more reserves of cobalt than the rest of the planet combined. You then compare the scramble for cobalt in the modern age today to King Leopold's reign, which was 1885 to 1908, in the region where rubber and ivory were plundered to the detriment of the people there, where not only 13 million died, a lot of our listeners are unaware that when you go to any country in Africa, I think it's a pretty much a given. I guess it's a, a given um, to state that most people living in post-colonial areas of the African continent are aware that it was Leopold's reign and those countries which were the most brutalized, the chopping off of arms of people in the rubber plantations, etc. I mean, these were stories that have been long told, but As many listeners are aware, this does not make it often to the pages of the New York Times or the New Yorker, and it doesn't even make it to secondary school education in most countries, not just the United States. You state that this kind of detriment of human life, not just the millions lost under King Leopold's rule, but there are thousands of loss of life a year where human rights are denied, and you say they are deemed erga omnes and jus cogens in international law. And I'm wondering if you could explain this to our readers, because I will keep going back to this point, that party where you'll get the people who are interested in what you're doing, but you also get the people who are like, I'm not political. (laughs) And I've had those people in front of me, and I say, well, you're drinking Coca-Cola. You're drinking champagne. That's political. Everything we do has a political reaction. That said, some people just want to have their Diet Coke and not think about child trafficking or child laborers in the case of what we're discussing now. So I'm wondering if you might discuss and explain how human rights are deemed ergo omnes and cogens in the sense that Westerners might understand this, because we do take a lot for granted. Yes, well, a lot to unpack here. Um, you know, the first thing I would say is, in point of fact, we should think about uh, modern-day slavery and child labor uh, and related human rights offenses as apolitical. I mean, in, th- there should be nothing political about um, addressing child labor or slave labor. You know that, and and so that's part of the issue that needs to be um, sorted out. That it it's not a it shouldn't be a right or left um, agenda. Uh, and it shouldn't make people feel politically uncomfortable to talk about something that is essentially apolitical, which is um, ensuring the basic 
um, norms of human rights uh, are are maintained not just for us but for everyone and uh, and that gets to the the present uh, what's happening in places like the DRC relative to to the past and you know we live in an era where essential norms of uh, dignity human rights uh, are meant to be applied equally. Uh, to everyone um, uh, in, in international law, that you and you can't uh, uh, have laws in your country that are um, uh, run run in antithesis to or against basic principles of human rights, basic principles of freedom, um, um, uh, self sovereignty, right to life, uh, uh, right not to be exploited in uh, in slave labor, gender equality, equality based on age, caste, class, wh what have you. That, But the fact of the matter is, even though these are principles laid down on paper that we are meant to be aspiring to, what, what we have to face is the fact that there is still this broad subclass of people, largely in the global South, largely people of color, largely minority communities uh, and women and girls who are exploited in ways that harken back to colonial times and and the old old ancient world uh, of slavery and the slave trade. Um, uh, I say ancient because it goes back millennia. It, it didn't end all that long ago, at least on paper. But um, it, it's an institution that goes back millennia. And, and so you mentioned Leopold, and you know Africa from the moment the Europeans uh, first arrived on the on the shores of of africa you know this long tale of of torment misery exploitation uh slavery uh, and pillage of resources commenced i mean this goes back to the early 1400s and what was called the the age of discovery uh, um which as i say in my book cobalt red would be more accurately called by the people who were quote unquote discovered the age of invasion um uh, but Europeans, you know, set set themselves to the task of uh, pillaging the resources uh, of the global south uh, and enslaving the people they found there. And that went on for centuries. And once the slave trade was abolished on paper, starting in, you know, the 1800s across the Western world, it didn't mean that that practice ended. It just morphed and evolved, and, and and the most immediate transition was well, if we're not going to take Africans across the Atlantic and uh, and enslave them in in our New World colonies, let's just do it where they're sitting. Uh, and there were a handful of developments historically that allowed Europeans to penetrate the continent of Africa um, when they hadn't been able to for centuries, in large part because of malaria. Um, but once they got their uh, uh, their paws into the you know inner inner sanctum of um, the African continent, Leopold in particular, with the uh, Congo region, um, you know another whole level of ransacking and pillage began. And in the case of the Congo, um, it, it's it, it, that chapter, that book just keeps repeating itself in chapter after chapter. It was rubber. Um, primarily rubber um, for the first automobile revolution um, for rubber tires. Uh, and now we have a, a, a new automobile revolution with electric vehicles. And it, it's the curse of the Congo historically that it sits on an abundance of resources 
that are used for industrial advancement uh, and revolutions. And it was rubber forest um, that Leopold got his hands on in, in the Congolese interior during the first automobile revolution when the automobile was invented in 1885 and then the rubber tire in 1888. Uh, and that's when Leopold de deployed his mercenary army um, to pillage, uh, enslave, torture, and terrorize the Congolese people to extract rubber sap. And now you jump ahead 130 years and we're having a new automobile revolution, an important one, which is transitioning away from fossil fuels to electric vehicles. And the batteries in those cars need large amounts of cobalt. And lo and behold, the Congo is sitting on more cobalt than the rest of the planet combined. And it's just another um, iteration, the new chapter in that old story of, of pillaging and ransacking the people and resources of the Congo. Yeah, and, and they are amongst the poorest on the planet where indeed <laughs> they ought to be the richest given what is produced from that country. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, a, it's a country that is sitting on such, uh, such a, a resource rich territory, uh, gold, diamonds, tantalum, tin, nickel, uh, tungsten, timber, um, uh, and uh, lead, uh, and, and now of course, uh, cobalt um, that's being used in, and manganese as well, that's being used in um, lithium ion rechargeable batteries. But it's, you know, first it was of course the colonial period and, and there's nothing by way of sharing in wealth uh, with the domestic population that was intrinsic to colonialism. In fact, it was the opposite, just siphon out all the value uh, through whatever means necessary to be enjoyed at the very top of the chain. In the case of the Congo, it was a king. And the, the tragedy is that's the exact theme that's taking place now with cobalt. It's siphon out all that value, no matter what, whatever the cost is to the people and environment of the Congo and enjoy that value at the top of the chain. But instead of a king, now it's mega cap tech companies and uh, EV companies um, generating uh, immense profits while the people of Congo continue to eke out uh, a subhuman existence on a few dollars a day. Can you tell our listeners the extent of the child slavery? How many are currently now being exploited that you know of that's on record? Well, it's, you know, these are difficult things to quantify with precision. Um, it's a very dangerous part of the world, as you can imagine, um, highly militarized uh, with everything from, from the Congolese army to just informal militias, which means um, bands of, of males with Kalashnikovs and machetes. Um, but there, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are scrounging out cobalt um, in highly dangerous, toxic, uh, injurious conditions, um, and tens of thousands of them are children. Um, precisely how many, uh, we may never know, but the, the general quantum is tens of thousands of children and hundreds of thousands of people in general. What were you able to find in your research that gave you some of the numbers? Obviously, this isn't just like child trafficking. It's not like there's some kind of record. It wasn't organized as per Nazi Germany. But the reality is that a lot of people become dubious and they think, oh, this is just these are just left talking points. If this were a real issue, why isn't the UN making this a big thing? Well, the UN has been addressing human trafficking, not just child trafficking. 
as one of the major problems of our day. Why do you think these messages are not making it back to the kitchen table in Ohio or in southern France? A lot of people do prefer, it's not just about not wanting to hear it, but they prefer to focus on, well, let's talk about what we're going through. We're having a financial crisis. I can barely afford petrol, right? Well, and I understand that. I, you know, People have their immediate needs, concerns, and worries. And that's very, uh, very natural. I mean, I have my immediate concerns and worries, and, and so do you. And, and of course, um, you know, life can be overwhelming for all of us, for sure. Uh, I think, I think what's very important to bear in mind, though, um, and my hope is that Cobalt Red will change that, that it this issue will across the world, on their kitchen table, on their commute to work, um, around the water cooler, uh, at the dinner table, whatever it might be. Uh, I think the world is going to soon be hearing the voices of the Congolese people uh, very viscerally uh, when Cobalt Red is released uh, two weeks from today, in fact. And, and that's the purpose of the book, is to bring the voices of the Congolese people to a world that cannot function largely on a day-to-day -day basis without their suffering. I, how many of us can get through a day without our smartphone or our tablet or our laptop? Uh, and how many of us do drive or, or are thinking of driving an electric vehicle to, to support climate sustainability goals? I mean, that's, uh, that's just about everybody uh, across the global north. So we can't get through a day with all our understandable worries and concerns. We can't get through a day without participating in and relying on uh, a human rights and environmental catastrophe in the Congo. Now, prior to my book, uh, why hasn't this story gotten more attention? I think that's a very important element to this. There certainly have been uh, some NGOs working on this issue. Some journalists have been down there and written articles uh, and the UN and various UN agencies and various government aid agencies uh, are meant to be working on this. But the truth is this story, this truth from the Congo, Congo, not unlike the truth from Leopold's Congo, is being shrouded and obscured by powerful stakeholders at the top of the chain who want to keep business as usual going as long as possible. And so they put forth statements that uh, everything is okay, or it's not as bad as, as you might think, where we maintain human rights standards all the way down our supply chain to the mining level, our supply chains are 100% audited. We have zero tolerance policies on child labor. All the big tech and EV companies uh, and mining companies will put out these statements. The reality is almost none of it is true. That beneath this obfuscation of marketing and PR, uh, there's a very dark, painful, tormented truth being experienced by the people of the Congo who are digging out this cobalt for a few dollars a day, suffering uh, immense injury, peril, and death to feed it up the chain to companies worth trillions. And that's the truth that I think will be coming out, um, is coming out, and will hopefully come out with a wave um, once Cobalt Red is out. And, and then hopefully the conversation will shift to, okay, let's no longer misrepresent the truth on the ground. Let's start acknowledging it and addressing it because uh, the very... A legitimacy of our global economic order is put in peril if it's built upon this kind of colonial age 
oppression and degradation and exploitation of the poorest people in Africa. How do Americans come to understand that their use of their iPhone, and I have one right next to me, as I was reading your book, I was like, oh God, oh God. Now, is the answer here that we improve education? Is this the answer also that we find other ways around iPhone? We go analog? We stop all the social media madness? We don't really need it after all. <laughs> what are your thoughts around this kind of disconnect that happens between a lot of our mates back home and what's going on in the real world where children are slaves because we need our iPhones? I think, uh, you know, it's such an important question. And I think it's, it's, I try to always um, put myself in, you know, the life circumstances or shoes of other people when I'm conversing with them and not um, hold against them, um, at least initially, um, there may be lack of exposure to other realities in the world. You know, not all of us um, come from migrant families, or maybe had parents who were in touch with um, the broader world around the, us and and took it upon themselves to make sure we we appreciated how lucky we are um, um, even if as you say you know the poor some of the poorest people in the west would still be princes in the heart of Africa or you know South Asia uh, so and it's hard sometimes to wrap our minds around that reality because you think how can there be such wide gaps um, in circumstance uh, and and just basic living conditions uh, on the same planet. And I, you know, you really feel that when you go into some of the poorest parts of South Asia and Africa uh, and then come back home to London, New York, um, LA, whatever it might be, uh, and you see just how much wealth and opulence uh, there is. I mean, just the fact that gro grocery stores are stocked full with you know, colorful vegetables um, and, and and from all uh, of all kinds. It just and the lights work and the water's hot. And you think you know, these things, these would be like luxuries where I was 24 hours ago uh, in in the Congo or in rural Bangladesh or, or, or whatever. So, yeah, it's it. But there are some people whose minds will be open to wanting uh, to understand, you know, th there's some inner compassion and maybe they weren't exposed to that point, but when you talk about it, they, they'll, they'll perk up. And I think it happens most successfully when you kind of are able to forge the connective tissue between those people across the global South uh, um, who uh, live in such disadvantageous uh, violent, uh, impoverished circumstances, and, and those of us, um, uh, uh, you know, here in the West, and and the smartphone is the number one link between all of us, you know, along with all of our other rechargeable gadgets. Um, yeah, as I said, we can't get through a day without these things, but they don't charge and work without cobalt that's being scrounged out of the ground by some of the most disadvantaged, poor. Uh, people in the world. So they may look and feel like they're from another world in, in terms of their life circumstances, but they are intimately linked to us. And I think that's what's going to really strike people as this story emerges and as the voices of the Congolese people reach out and are heard that 
wait a minute, the other end of this gadget is that kind of degradation and misery? That doesn't seem right. Uh, how did this come to pass? Who allowed it to happen? Uh, and, and once people begin to feel outrage, I do believe that there will um, a movement will emerge to address this, not unlike the movement that emerged to address Leopold's genocidal ransacking of the Congo um, and, and various other human rights injustices. There's always a community of conscience that once they learn um, and they feel that connection and that shared humanity to people who, but for life circumstances, are just like them, their fellow human beings with wishes, dreams, you know, needs, loves, and wants, um, but our system, uh, global economic system, is treating them as if they are subhuman and worthless. And people, will, people, once they hear this and realize how directly connected they are to it on a day-to-day -day basis, I, I have every confidence. I don't have all the answers. Uh, uh, I'm not smart enough for that. Um, but I'm, I, I, I made my best effort to bring the voices of the Congolese people to the world. And my hope is that will motivate a community of conscience to see this tragedy to, to an end. Well, you mentioned in your introduction in the first chapter, you address the stakeholders. Who are they specifically? Well, demand starts at the top of the chain. Okay, so whoever is selling you a, a smartphone, tablet, laptop, or electric vehicle um, uh, has immense demand for cobalt and other lithium-ion battery metals. So that's Apple, Microsoft, Google, Samsung, Huawei, LTC, Tesla, all the legacy car makers, all the new EV car makers that are popping up. Um, I mean, it's a long, long list, and, and and there's no need to pick on any one of them because they're all equally responsible for the demand for cobalt that's resulting in so much harm and destruction, and not just of the people of the Congo, but their environment. And I think that's the other side of this story that's important to understand. As we uh, in the global north seek to achieve climate sustainability goals, that are important to achieve by transitioning to electric vehicles, um, at least in the case of cobalt, that transition, that green transition for us uh, is caked in an immense amount of environmental destruction for the people in the southeastern corner of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Millions of trees have been clear cut to make place for enormous mines that you could see from outer space. Um, Big mining companies dump toxic effluents into the water, air, dirt, uh, contaminating the entire landscape. Um, so how can we pursue our green future by destroying um, a, a rich and important part of Africa? It, it, uh, it's, a, it's a hypocrisy that needs to be addressed. In your chapter, Unspeakable Richness, you write, the flow of minerals and money is further obscured by a web of shady connections between foreign mining companies and Congolese political leaders, some of whom become scandalously rich, auctioning the country's mining concessions, while tens of millions of Congolese people suffer extreme poverty, food insecurity, and civil strife. Then you go into the history of Congolese politics, noting this kind of gaping hole between 1960 and 2019, since the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, where many leaders, in fact, stole from the country, living as if despots, leaving their people to putrefy. The West has a hand in this. Could 
you explain that because a lot of people, you know this, it's really hard sometimes to talk to people who are even right of center and they're like, well, no, we are rich because we deserve the wealth. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Go back to medieval history. Europe was one of the poorest places on the planet. Let's begin there. And you just, you discussed earlier the quote unquote discovery era, which others like Todorov have called, in fact, conquest eras. But again, there's a disconnect between how people see the inherited wealth that they have a right to in the West, right? I'm putting that all in air quotes. And the fact that the assassination of Lumumba was not an accident exactly. No. And, you know, there's there's a very particular and tragic political history in the Congo that's important for people to understand in order to fully appreciate what's happening in uh, the mining provinces today. And so I do take some time in the book to to describe that because um, yeah, the West did have a very direct hand in um, just worsening affairs uh, uh, and ruining any chance, I think, of uh, a prosperous independence for the Congo. But if you reach back I think it's fair to say that much of the multi-generational wealth um, enjoyed, much of the centuries-old multi-generational wealth enjoyed by um, Western Europe and North America was built on the slave trade. I mean, full stop. Um, uh, Ransacking of resources and three and a half centuries of virtually nil cost of labor. And that, you know, that generates a lot of wealth that is... Um, that has been passed down across generations. And on the other side of that ledger is destruction of wealth, of communities, um, of, of, of commerce and prosperity for the peoples whose populations were uh, enslaved um, uh, and destroyed. Uh, and so that's, that's sort of the broad you know, imbalance sheet between the global North uh, and the global South, in particular Africa. But, you know, Africa, coming out of the colonial period, African nations um, had their shot at independence. And the thing to remember, it's a a little bit hard for people to understand sometimes, but, you know, it's a reasonable thing to say that poor governance and corruption uh, uh, in Africa is a contributor to the ongoing poverty and strife um, uh, and and, and misery of, of the people who live in many African nations. Ab- absolutely, that is a reasonable statement. But we have to understand some important facets emerging from this history I just described. Colonialism in particular taught the people of Africa that government is a system of theft. It, it's not a system of governance, of uh, ensuring safety, security, and prosperity for a people. It's a system of theft. That's what colonialism was, full stop. So when independence uh, movements came around in Africa, you know, the idea was, well, now it's our turn. And you have these strong men and kleptocrats who took power in various countries uh, with the support of their former colonial uh, owners um, to keep them in power as long as they continued um, the flow of resources. And this had a very tragic outcome for the Congo. Uh, you know, Congo got independence in 1960, they held elections, and a nationalist charismatic leader named Patrice Lumumba uh, 
was elected to be the first, uh, the country's first prime minister. And uh, he didn't last more than a few months because uh, he had a vision of um, keeping the Congo's resources, in particular mineral resources, which was, were responsible for 70 or 80% of the government's income, um, keeping those resources and the value of them as much as possible for the prosperity of the Congolese people. And there's a whole kind of convoluted and sordid history there, but the upshot was Belgium, the US, the UN, um, and the neo-colonial interests they represented conspired to assassinate Lumumba and install a, a corrupt, bloodthirsty dictator in his place, Joseph Mobutu, who ran the um, and the Belgians right before him uh, for three decades as, as a personal wealth machine, as long as he kept minerals flowing towards the West. And that's what he did and, and until he was deposed in a coup by Laurent Kabila in 1997, um, who was in turn assassinated in 2001. And then his son, Joseph Kabila, took his place. And it's during that period, um, uh, 2001, to 2019 when Joseph Kabila ran the country that a lot of these mining contracts were sold off um, and auctioned off uh, because this was the this was now the transition into the sort of gadget era uh, the the first generation of cell phones and then becoming smartphones and lithium-ion batteries and and he sold off huge swaths of Katanga, mostly to Chinese mining companies and took large bribes and kickbacks for doing so and enriched himself and his family. But again, the people of the Congo saw little to no benefit as they had for generations from these immense riches that are right under their feet. You're listening to Savage Minds and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing we don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Well, this is also a typical story because, as we know from Iran several years before, and then nine years later with Nkrumah, what doesn't serve a certain political interest in the West does get killed off or coups are sponsored especially in the decolonizing parts of the world. I agree with you. When you began speaking, you mentioned that this is a somewhat, I'm paraphrasing, a continuum of slavery. And I remind my students all the time of this, that slavery has morphed. And we don't call it slavery because it's not the same practice. But there are other practices that have taken their places in terms of even slavery was not a monolith. There were different ways that slavery was practiced. And then you had that indentured servitude difference in Central and South America. When you wrote this book, were you aware that dealing with the subject of child slavery would somehow step on the toes of a lot of these multinationals. You see the heads of these companies saying, we're working against child slavery, we're trying to modernize our sites, our factories, whatever we do, we try to ensure that all human rights are observed. But at the same time, your book states that as of last year, there is no such thing as a clean supply chain of cobalt. Hence, there's basically at some stage going to be a form of child slavery involved in this. Is that correct? 
Well, and and I can say there's still no clean supply chain of cobalt coming out of the Congo. You know, uh, it, that that hasn't changed, uh, and it, it, I hope and pray that it will. Uh, but it, it hasn't changed as of yet. And yeah, listen, this there there are always powerful stakeholders at the top of any chain of servitude, slavery, and exploitation. I mean, that's why that that's why that chain exists. Um, somewhere, some powerful. Um, stakeholder has demand for cheap labor, cheap goods, cheap services, cheap resources um, that can invariably be sourced across the global south. And, you know, then then the chain begins, it commences. And some industries are doing better uh, at trying to understand the bottom of their supply chains and trying to address them. You know, I see some promising movements in the garment sector for interest, uh, for, uh, for instance, um, uh, although much work remains to be done, there's still all kinds of child labor, human trafficking and forced labor at the bottom of fast fashion supply chains, um, as there are across any, any number of other supply chains from agriculture to, um, electronics to manufacturing to construction, uh, and so on, uh, to seafood as well. Uh, so there's always, so when I was going to the Congo on my first trip in 2018 to, um, start researching this issue, I knew who was at the top of the chain. And it's the same companies who are still at the, at the top of the chain, the same interests, the, you know, the ones we, we talked about a couple of minutes ago. Uh, and I knew how the reality, uh, well, I knew how conditions were being represented outside of the Congo by these stakeholders. Uh, prior to going to the Congo, what the severity of misrepresentation was of those conditions. But then I realized once I was on the ground, um, virtually nothing that was being said about conditions in the in the mining provinces was true. Uh, it was uh, everything, almost everything, was a fiction, and and that's what slavery thrives on is that obscurity of conditions at the bottom of the chain. Um, it 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 thrives on that fiction that well, look the other way, things are not so bad. We're addressing them. Our supply chain is not so bad. It's pretty clean. Can't speak to my you know peer companies, and then they'll all say that, and so then. If everyone's supply chain is okay, then why is there so much misery and torment at the bottom of your collective supply chain? What companies are making better strides towards eliminating any form of child trafficking or human exploitation within their chain of supplies to the production, to the show floor? In the case of cobalt, I don't think anyone's making reasonable efforts at all, full stop. Um, not, not even close. N nothing even next of kin to a reasonable effort is being made by any of the companies at the top of the cobalt supply chain um, to improve on a, a scaled, sustainable, genuine basis, the basic conditions of work, life, and sustainability of cobalt mining uh, in the DRC. No way. No one's, no one's making even remotely reasonable efforts. You discuss in the section, from toxic pit to shiny showroom, the global supply chain from the creuser, the diggers, to the, let's say, iPhone sales floor, of which each phone requires a few grams of refined cobalt. And you give an illustration in this book, which I think just alone in your book, people need to take a look at that to understand what is at stake here. Because you show the creuser digging up, you show everything down to the negociant, the depot, the processor, industrial mines, the commercial grade refiner, the battery manufacturer, then to the EV 
or the mobile phone. Now, people say, well, this is normal. This is what we have to do. And there's always been a bit of exploitation. This is not on par, though, with any preceding era in recent history, to my knowledge, where you have such open use of child labor, and unforgivingly so. Or are there other cases like this? Well, and I'm glad you mentioned the supply chain. And I think it's very important uh, to be clear on the supply chain, which is why um, I spent a lot of time uh, on several trips on the ground, tracing and understanding the supply chain in detail, because it's it's the it's the sort of multi-layered nature and opaque nature of multinational modern day supply chains that is what gives cover to all the exploitation and provides space for a company at the top of the chain to say, well, no, I don't think that's in my supply chain. My supply chain goes from here to here to here. Um, and it's it's clean. And until that is uh, the, that is disabused with a more rigorous, uh, truthful tracing of the supply chain uh, all the way to the bottom. You, you can't have constructive conversations about how to repair what's happening. And what you find, whether it's in cobalt mining in the Congo or apparel manufacture in South Asia or agricultural production in the Central Valley of California or uh, seafood in Southeast Asia, and you can go on and on and on across the global economy. What you find is that there's almost always this informal underbelly to the formal supply chain. And what companies tend to talk about when they're talking about their supply chain is the formal part of it. And, and they, they tend to have decent visibility and understanding of it, but don't always even look, make the effort to look or know how to look to understand the informal underbelly of their supply chain, which is where most of the um, severe forms of exploitation like child labor, and slavery will, will take place. And what companies, I think, generally understand but find it expedient not to address uh, is that there's this informal underbelly to almost every global supply chain, be it agriculture, uh, seafood, manufacturing, construction, uh, or mining uh, in Central Africa. And that's where most of the severe child labor and slavery exploitation uh, is taking place. And that's what has to be addressed. So when companies talk about their supply chain, they're, they're largely talking about their understanding of the formal part of it. But there's always this underbelly um, that feeds into the formal supply chain, um, uh, but is more opaque uh, and difficult to trace. And so I spent a lot of time tracing uh, in the Congo, that informal part of the supply chain where there's so much child labor, so much forced labor, and just... Uh, egregiously exploited people um, uh, facing toxic exposure uh, and, you know, penny wages and subhuman working conditions to feed this cobalt into the formal supply chain uh, and then up to the top uh, where it's sold in our phones and gadgets and cars. And of these child laborers, what percentage are boys and what percentage are girls roughly? It, it's interesting. Gender you know, plays a role in, in this instance in, in, in terms of task. So, you know, there's the, there are certain things that require more strength to do, like digging tunnels or um, rebar into uh, a mountain of rock and all that are done by teenage boys and, of course, grown men who, who would have more strength. And 
Um, women and girls tend to do um, more of the surface digging and washing and rinsing of stones um, to separate out, you know, what's not valuable like dirt and, and, and just rocks from the more valuable ore that contains cobalt or copper or nickel and other things. Um, so distribution in terms of boys and girls, women and men working, but they do different tasks of the strength required uh, to do deeper tunnel digging or excavation. And you go into the sexual assault of a lot of these girls. And I remember at one point you said you could only presume that some of the kids strapped on their backs were the product of that. And I'm thinking these women are, these girls are working with children on their backs. What people need to understand is cobalt is toxic. It is very toxic. It's toxic to touch, toxic to breathe. And that means the hundreds of thousands of women and children, men, boys and girls, who are digging this cobalt out of the ground every day are suffering toxic exposure. Uh, and this has a huge impact on general public health in the Southeastern DRC, um, from uh, defor deformity at birth, to cancers, to respiratory ailments, to uh, acute skin disease, uh, dermatitis, uh, and on and on. And now, many of the young uh, teenage girls and young women uh, have their babies strapped to their back while they're digging uh, cobalt. And that means these these infants, you know, some of them are just a few weeks and months old, are inhaling toxic cobalt particulates all day, every day. Uh, and we don't even know what that's going to do to their health as they grow into young children and hopefully adults. Um, and many of those babies... Um, uh, are the result of sexual assault of, of uh, women and girls. It's a huge, huge, uh, largely under-discussed tragedy that's taking place. I mean, women and girls are almost always going to be the most vulnerable population in any poor, war-torn, conflict-ridden um, uh, environment. Uh, and so they're naturally preyed upon. And no one at the top of the chain talks about zero tolerance policies on the rape of teenage girls digging their cobalt. You know, they just make these broad general statements about human rights and, and dignity and so on uh, without even sending anyone to go and see what's happening on the ground. And, you know, they'll see the kinds of conditions I talk about in Cobalt Red, including a pandemic of sexual assault of, of vulnerable women and young girls. Well, this is quite unsurprising, given what I know about this subject, but still, one would think, given the UN's work, especially the last 15 years, on the subject of child trafficking, their awareness of child trafficking, their understanding of rape as a human rights violation, finally, it took years to get that through, I'm wondering, you have done some kinds of work in liaising with the UN. Could you discuss that? And might that be something that will bring change or not? Yeah, you know, the UN I, I, the UN has an important role to play. Um, I don't think the UN, let alone anyone else, is doing uh, remotely sufficient work in the southeastern DRC. Um, uh, so not to single them out because they're not alone in, in that um in, in, in not being uh, up to the task as of yet, uh, but it's going to take a different kind of pressure uh, and I think a different kind of movement to persuade um, Western governments, um, UN agencies, 
um, and ultimately these these tech and EV companies to take this situation more seriously. The the fact is, and there are UN agencies uh, on the ground in the Congo, all over the place, uh, providing security in certain parts uh, of the Congo with peacekeeping forces. That's mostly the eastern part of the Congo, bordering Rwanda and Uganda. Uh, you know, UNICEF is uh, on the ground uh, in many parts of the Congo, including the mining provinces. Uh, and uh, same with uh, UK and US governments have their aid agencies on the ground. But when you look around, you think, well, what is actually happening here? What is anyone actually doing? Because I don't see much uh, at all by way of meaningful activity. Um, uh, and certainly meaningful activity at scale, because you can just walk into any number of mining areas and see hundreds, if not a few thousand children, along with their parents and adults digging and scrounging in conditions that we would have rejected uh, centuries ago for our people over here, but somehow uh, it's okay for those people over there. This is also several degrees of separation or geography, because one thing I didn't know until I took a tour several Christmases ago when I was living in London, I took some tours on Christmas Day, one of which was on Charles Dickens. And I had no idea how politically invested he was in ending these workhouses for children, which was a plague in the nineteenth, late 19th century, early 20th century England. Children were chattel, and they were chattel simply because one or both of their parents were dead, or because one of their parents was a prostitute or of ill mental health or of ill health. This isn't that far removed from our history. Yeah, it's not. Uh, you know, children have been subject to such uh, horrific forms of exploitation throughout history because, of course, they're more vulnerable um, uh, by virtue of, of being children uh, and can be controlled and abused because they're children. Uh, now, uh, that said, uh, you 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 wouldn't be able to find a Western country in which child labor was any sort of meaningful contribution to the economy, uh, or if discovered, would be tolerated uh, in any reasonable uh, for any reasonable period of time. You know that yes, it wasn't too long ago in certain parts of the Western world where you had um, child labor uh, taking place. But you couldn't send the children of, of London or Rome or uh, New York or San Francisco to go and scrounge in toxic mining pits. Uh, but somehow it's, it seems okay to send the children of, of Africa uh, to work in that way. And, and the reality is that our, our global economic order, uh, which has come to understand the importance of protecting and preserving children childhood uh, and child security for our children doesn't seem quite as uh, perturbed, invested, or energetic about doing the same thing for the children uh, across the global south. Well, this begs more questions in terms of a lot of people will say, why do we focus on children? Why not grown adults? This is, again, not unrelated. We need to be attacking all forms of human exploitation. But if you can't address the issues that are happening to children, really young children as well. We're not talking 16-year-olds. Not that that's a good thing either. 
there seems to be this disconnect that people would say that we need to talk about comparative holocaust, comparative exploitations, or comparative suffering. And this is, to me, something that we need to avoid doing in a way. We need to look holistically at human rights and understand that it's not that you think only children should be protected. Your work recognizes the links between the sexual exploitation of girls, for instance, and even one could argue the sexual exploitation of poor women, because the children being exploited are not Congo's 1%. They're not Congo's elite class. I have been working uh, in recent years on the kind of symbolic exploitation that happens even through NGOs using the likenesses of children in their advertisements so that people will click and donate. Now, that's not per se, child exploitation. These are kids whose photos, likenesses have been used to shove on a Save the Children pamphlet, website, their Facebook account. I actually had a discussion with Save the Children in Italy. Every time I opened my Facebook, there was a child dying of malnutrition. I wrote them a press query. I said, why are you violating what are UN regulations? And goes against actually the Treatise on the Rights of Children. Uh, they said that they get permission from every parent to run these ads. I'm going to still follow up on that. I haven't had time. This happened at the very end of last week. But one thing I'm aware of is that there's a lot of exploitation happening, even within the alleged NGO sector that claims to work against child exploitation. To me, running photos of little girls that are already trafficked and sexualized doesn't really help the case of these girls and their right to privacy or the case of their bodily autonomy or the case that they don't really have the say and nor do their parents to have the say over their right to not be reproduced in publicity for various NGOs, using them and their likeness to fundraise. Now, again, this is not the same as working in a mine at the age of six, but I think that there is this, I think the charity sector doesn't help, if I can be blunt here. Yeah, this this uh, this this is a very uh, this is a very challenging aspect of human rights work, and you know, the, to to go back to the start of your very important point, um, you know, child labor it's it's a, it's an interconnected phenomenon, okay, and one has to come at it and address all aspects that um, promote child labor or make children vulnerable to having to work and the, the you know this is this this these are all issues driven by poverty fundamentally and when parents can't earn enough to survive um they can't send children to school they have to bring children to the workplace whatever it might be it could be a garment factory it could be a cobalt mine to work and try to boost income so the family can survive and it very almost inevitably comes back to poverty so, you know, addressing poverty, ensuring basic, sustainable, decent livelihoods for parents, uh, no parent wants to send their child uh, to do hazardous work. Um, they're not any different. The parents in the global south are not any different from us in that regard. They want their children to go to school if they could and to have a better life, just like we want our children to have a better life than we've had. Uh, but the circumstances, namely grinding extreme poverty, um, typically don't allow it. So that, so coming at child labor means coming at poverty, security for families, security for uh, communities and addressing all of the disadvantageous uh, and exploitative economic conditions uh, that may be promoting uh, and sustaining uh, poverty in, in a community by fluke or by design. 
Um, now, NGOs, it's this is this is a this is a difficult thing because many NGOs are uh, formed and staffed and run by heartfelt intentions, well-meaning people who put their lives on the line um, uh, and and undergo great challenges and have to work in difficult circumstances with great courage to try to address the kinds of topics we're talking about today. Uh, but similarly, there are um, members of the broader human rights community that use that kind of suffering uh, to make careers for themselves or raise money that may or may not be used in the way uh, that the organization says it should be used, or maybe it's not used as efficiently as it should. And of course, you have the extreme examples where there's just, you know, outright um, corruption. But I think, you know, that's not as common as as the good civil society organizations that are trying to make a difference, often at great personal risk and peril. But yes, um, charitable foundations, some NGOs, some aid agencies, um, either wittingly or unwittingly can use, you know, more emotional tactics like, you know, putting up pictures of, of uh, children um, who are obviously suffering to try to strike at heartstrings to raise money. And, and I also understand a little bit where they're coming from because they have to compete for our attention in a world that is just overloading everyone with information and content and it's hard to stand out so you can see how some organizations might think well we really need to grab people we have one second before you know the the feed moves on to the next image or or the or the news is bombarded with the next story whatever it might be uh, so we need to grab people and so you can see how organizations might want to grab attention um, to support their good intentions, but in in the, in some circumstances, it's of course used for self advantage, and and that's a shame when um, the organizations that are meant to be helping those in need are actually using those people suffering to benefit themselves. I have issues with the fact that what you've discussed, what you've worked on, even before this book, in terms of the exploitation of girls and women. These are issues that have come about because of the way that the Global South has been treated by the likes of the European Union, the US, Canada, individual countries within the EU, the IMF, the World Bank. Poverty is is a human construction. It's not a natural occurrence. This is something I learned when I was in Haiti after that 2010 earthquake. The way that those buildings collapsed as if a stack of pancakes, you would see people killed everywhere. That was a human error. That wasn't a natural disaster. These are man-made disasters. Poverty is largely a man-made disaster. And one thing I learned working in Haiti, an island, the west part of which is Haiti, the eastern part of which is the Dominican Republic, over 10,000 NGOs operate there. I'm very critical as a result of my work there even prior, but much more now, of the way that international NGOs function, the money that is raised, what percentage goes to these people, and why is there no NGO? I mean, really, why are, are there no real INGOs that are working within the parliaments of the EU, their own countries, to change the ways in which economic poverty 
is spiraling out towards those places, those geographies, instead of working on making a UNICEF calendar, selling that, making people feel good about helping. Because at the end of the day, Siddharth, we all have to do an accounting. Do we need to be buying? There are people, and we all know them, who buy iPhones, every model. Should that not be a thing that people stop? Should Apple, in fact, and other companies, Xiaomi, etc., be obliged to stop making updates so often? Should there not be, in fact, a recognition that all labor should be paid a certain number, such that maybe the iPhones that people say are expensive are even too cheap. <laughs> and I know I might annoy some people by what I'm saying. My critique of the NGO structure is that I think it's also an arm of colonialism. I really do. One thing I saw in Haiti, and I'm sure you saw this if you were around any of these NGO UN folks, they come from elite schools. They It's not just the Oxbridge or the... Ivy League types. They can come from even good state universities in the U.S., but they're all coming from elite institutions within their own countries in the sense of they're coming from the best universities in Pakistan, the best universities in Sri Lanka, in Kenya, and they get jobs to be part of this international brotherhood, sisterhood of NGO workers. And it's very strange. I wrote a book about this because I was very intrigued by what I saw. And the way that people thought of their own profession, some of whom were very cynical and very critical of what they were doing. I met people who were like, after this, I'm out. I can't do it anymore. And I think that the NGO livelihood is an extension of colonialism. I really do. And I'm not saying that they don't have their heart in the right places. I think we have made a managerial class of an elite economic class within our own countries around the world to go and fix issues that can't be fixed by save the world, feed us, give money for these tents to be in this war-torn or flood-ridden country. This kind of devastation needs to be addressed within the heart of politics. I remember reading articles after the you know, how much money was raised and how much just went missing, you know, quote-unquote missing. Um, I mean, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, I think that speaks to some of the points you're making um, that there is this industry that sustains itself and in some cases enriches itself tragedies uh, or injustices around the world. And that's in those cases, it's, it is part of the problem. Uh, you know, there isn't even a reasonable uh, foreign NGO civil society population yet in the mining provinces of the Congo. I'm sure that's to come. And the question will be, well, Will they be actually making any sort of difference to the people there, or will they be sustaining and preserving their existence and their careers and professions? Um, and I don't know. I don't know how that'll play out. But in, there are enough data points that it can it can be that way. Uh, and, and you know, they'll tell stories about the the improvements that are being made, and then donors feel better, and whether they're foundation donors or individual donors, and then you carry on with life. And in a way, they seem to serve that function in some cases of just providing a vehicle through which people up the chain in the global north can just go ahead and feel better about things um, because they wrote the check. And that doesn't solve the problem, of course. It, in fact, perpetuates the problem because then attention moves elsewhere. And when nothing was solved or almost nothing was solved, um, that's... So I hear what you're saying, and I hope... Um, 
I hope that uh, that that's not how the story will unfold in the mining provinces of the DRC. Those people have suffered enough for too long. I mean, across generations, uh, I mean, they can't get any poorer. They can't get any more exploited. Uh, the only direction, if we if we put our hearts into it, is is up uh, for the people who live there. Uh, although I suppose it could just remain status quo, which in a way is just worse because as time goes by, if you're not if you're not improving people's general economic condition, they're only going to end up worse off because what happens? Their children inherit that miserable life and uh, reinforce poverty and child labor and disadvantage uh, from one generation to the next. So. Uh, yeah, I'm. It, it's something that's I've seen as well. It's always in my mind. Um, there, there is this sort of ecosystem or industry that uh, sustains itself by providing the optics of uh, improvement or addressing injustices uh, without maybe doing as much, if anything at all, to actually uh, improve those conditions. Thank you.